0: rfu contains grown-up themes and occasional course language when they get carried away please take care while listening hi professors this is james nightingale i'm a senior double majoring in screen studies and psychology at clark university recommended for you this week is the film i care a lot from 2020 made in the uk and the u.s written and directed by jay blakeson The film stars Rosamund Pike and Peter Dinklage, and I'm recommending this film because I've never felt this conflicted about a protagonist before. I mean, she is awful, but she's also compelling. It feels like it goes against everything that I've learned about how to write a good hero, and I can't quite figure out if this film is the nuanced capitalist critique that it seems to think that it is, but it's certainly got a lot going on, and I'm wondering what you make of it all. The gender, the lesbian relationship,
1: the loose tooth that she keeps in a milk jug, it's
0: all so crazy. This. this. This is Recommended For You. For You.
2: For you. A podcast where Clark University screen studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. Welcome
1: to Recommended For You. I, I feel like it we should be. have that. Yeah. <laughs> That's
0: in the can, you. That's in the can.
2: Welcome to RFU Episode Two.
0: I'm Rock Sommer.
2: I'm Soren Sorensen, and tonight we are talking about I care a lot. The 2020 film directed by Jay Blakeson. Honestly, like, here's the the big question.
1: Like, why is this a film that we're watching? And and we listened to James's intro. James Nightingale introduced the film, uh, recommended it to us to discuss. And I know that one of the concerns uh, is James is taking my screenwriting class right now. And... He was wondering how this is, and I like the word valid, how this is a valid protagonist. So like in the class, this would be a protagonist that would be rejected out of hand because we don't identify with the protagonist and in a lot of ways actively loathe the protagonist. So it creates huge problems, I think, especially in act one of the film. And it makes me even wonder who is the protagonist. So I think that that's kind of one of the reasons this is on the table for us to discuss.
0: Well, as a fellow professor of one James Nightingale, I think it's also possibly on the table because this is not an unusual protagonist, but in fact, we have a long history of queer murders and my joking response is you show your students enough Hitchcock films, they're going to make you watch I Care A Lot uh, (laughs) and serve you some murderous lesbians right back at you.
2: I, I don't know that, you know, watching this film, I kind of was pleased because I love and am in love with Diane Weest Um, this is well documented, um, with my partner and I, and, and, uh, um, Carrie made fun of me um, as soon as I said that I was. We were watching this film for the podcast. She's like, "Oh, that's good because you love Diane Weiss And I was like, "It's true, I do." Um, while while this was being set up um, and you're and you're introduced to the characters, I I sort of was hoping that Diane Weist's character would end up being the protagonist, and that we're just meeting her a little later, even though it's being told from this villain or anti villain perspective. Um, but I, it, I was very disappointed to see that she. In that spoiler alert, this this film will be spoiled here. This is a relatively new film, so I think we should probably give a little spoiler alert. Um, but that her, her, she has really a very, very small part in this film. And to me, maybe one of the most memorable, uh, scenes, um, and, and line deliveries and things like that. But, um, you know, yeah, it was, it's a, it's a tough protagonist. I'm not saying that it's not, it's necessarily unusual. Um, but it's a tough protagonist to root for.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you, you get to the point where Diane Wiest could become the protagonist, and you kind of think, thank goodness, because like we've gotten through all of Act One, we've gotten through all the exp- exposition. Uh, Rosamund Pike is sort of this, you know, incredibly off-putting, difficult uh, protagonist to get on board with. And then you think, well, maybe she's not it. Maybe it's Diane Wiest. And and I kept thinking, so when Diane Wiest actually shows up and kind of gives you this little whiff that something's going on and that she may be a much more serious and formidable character than she appears at first glance. Um, I I jotted down in my notes. I said, the only way this film is going to work for me is if Diane Weist hatches a genius plan to escape murder Rosamund Pike and get away with it, driving away in her garage kept vintage red Mercedes. And that's not what happens. Like that's not at all what happens. And so in some ways the end of the film doesn't square up with where I think it Sets out, you know, it, it sort of promises that it's going to go a certain way, and it absolutely does not go in that direction.
0: Yeah, it's a real joyous moment when you realize that Marla has come put put herself up against this woman that's going to thwart her every plan and her every ambition. At the same time, I guess I was disappointed to this backstory, and this might be a theme in this episode, but but that Roman and Jennifer Peterson's past is what it is. It is a relatively disappointing reveal, and especially as we're taking on a film that that establishes itself as having feminist themes, not just being a film that happens to star women, uh, but to be exploring themes of violence against women at its core. That Jennifer Peterson isn't, in fact, like a badass spy in and of herself is really disappointing. But in fact you know a connection to a man is what her big mystery and secret and threat is
1: totally agree isn't it and and i just need a point of clarification here cuz i'm not even sure i get it so isn't the whole justification for all that behind the scenes machination and for why you know peter dinklage is such a formidable yeah. character it's just russian mafia right that's it like there's nothing more to it than that as soon as as soon as the film says the words russian mafia you're supposed to go oh russian mafia and then stop thinking about it
0: Is Alexei your son? What? No,
2: that idiot.
0: But you are connected to the Russian mafia. He'll kill you next.
2: I mean, that is, unless you get me out of here now. Then he might let you live. It could be the Yakuza. It could be the Yardies. It doesn't matter who, what it is. It's just this kind of big, scary other. Um, and, and I was disappointed that we didn't learn more about the um, Marla's backstory. Um, you know, it is Marlowe, right? Sorry if I'm, I'm sort of struggling. Um, you know, if if we had some reason, like what put her in this d- situation, and she tells us right in the beginning that she just wants to be a fucking lioness. Sorry, Andrew, if you have to bleep that. Um, but it's it's kind of just this, like you know, it's can you critique capitalism without celebrating it? And and it reminded me of um, of uh, uh, Martin Scorsese's um, Wolf of Wall Street a little bit, which is like you're laughing and kind of rooting for this character even though he's evil, right? And that that's that's what Marla is. Um, and and I, I had a hard time rooting for her. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think that's a very hot take. I read a few reviews or and heard a pe- few people say, and that obviously James is having the same trouble, which is relating to this person or supporting this person or wanting them to win.
0: Yeah, so two things here. The closest we get to a backstory uh, is when she's tied up in that chair speaking to Roman uh, and he threatens to kill her mother after he kills her. And she says, I don't give a shit about that fucking sociopath. And, you know, okay, so there's some childhood trauma there. Uh, No surprises. That's what motivates most antiheroes, including, you know, along the likes of, uh, like, Tony Soprano is, uh, you know, an antihero I was thinking of. Uh, At the same time, we don't get more than that. You know, and I would have loved a series of clues along that mother line if we are going to go the line of my mother fucked me up. Uh, Then we need a little bit more and a little bit how and when and why and to what extent. This is your life now, Jennifer. You are just another old lady in a care home with dementia, with incontinence, with arthritis. With no one except me. I am all for growing the canon of female anti heroes. The challenge, I think, in this film, or at least one of the challenges, is that we've also attached her to traditional women's work. You know, this like, you know, caring is her job. Uh, and it is verging on sacrilege that she that the crimes she perpetuates the violence she commits are against those who are so vulnerable and those whom women are regularly charged to take care of and so this becomes and this is how gender it's a bigger gender puzzle than woman versus man anti-hero because the henry hills and the tony sopranos get to participate in organized crime get to like deal drugs um, and live in this really fabulous, like, mise-en-scene of, like, drugs and violence and sex. And it just is not sexy for a woman to screw over old people. Either we need her in a different context, and that would be give us a similar joy or pleasure that we get from a Scorsese film, or we need to think through that, that conjunction in greater uh, detail and greater empathy uh, for everyone involved and the film ultimately doesn't deliver on that and instead puts us in this weird position where we ultimately are rooting against a woman and perhaps are rooting against her because of the very work she does which is different than because of a substantial character flaw uh, or something else.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, you know, like a a really clear comparison. So first off, I think that this could rightly uh, qualify as a neo noir. And I would consider, you know, I'm teaching film noir in fall, I would consider showing this as a really interesting test case of neo noir. And, but it's interesting that um, Marla doesn't compare to a femme fatale, she compares more to like a Walter Neff style, you know, like a, a kind of mastermind figure. And so everything that's going on in act one and early act two of the film uh, exists to show you that she's kind of almost like it strikes me that she's almost like an anti superhero in a way. Like she's so good at what she does. So without failure. And of course, she she has her failures later on and, and lets things slip in certain ways, partly because she's up against another mastermind. So it's like battle of the criminal masterminds in some ways. Um, But I think that that's the interesting twist that this film puts on neo-noir is essentially, um, you know, takes her out or extracts her from the femme fatale position and puts her right there square center as the evil criminal mastermind. And I think that's t- that's going to be tough to
2: take because it cuts against all sorts of conventions. No, I, I wonder if it would change anything um, about relating to her, rooting for her, if the if the old people that she's swindling were awful people themselves. Um, you know, and, and I don't think, you know, again, I, I could. I was trying to think, again, of protagonists, and Henry Hill came up in, when I was thinking about it too. It's like, I don't really root for him. I already kind of know what's going to happen. I mean, I know he's the protagonist, but I don't, he's certainly not, Imprisoning old people. I mean, he's committing murder. You know, there's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of conflict with that too. So I don't think it was Marla's gender necessarily, but it was that she's imprisoning elderly people who haven't done anything wrong, ostensibly, who are quote unquote innocent. Um, and so if these people were also swindlers or they were, um, you know, had had done something, inc- you know, wrong or morally ambiguous or whatever it is, with Diane Weiss' character, all she knows is she has a big bank account and no family members. And we don't, we're, we don't know that this person's a cold blooded murderer. And to your point, Rox, we don't even get any backstory to find out. Well, Diane Weist is actually this badass spy, and or this you know this kind of Russian mafioso or something like that.
0: Well, part of this wondering is a question about when this film is set. Like, in very obvious ways, it's the present. You know, people are dressing, uh, styling their hair, riding certain uh, cars—all the wealthiest of people of today. Uh, and yet that this sort of scheme can exist, uh, and the sort of intro and outro to the film via voiceover we get exists, speaks to perhaps a different societal context, like a near future or an alternative present. I don't believe she literally works for herself or else, you know, who she's keeping the diamonds from, for example, uh. Is is a bit broader corporation, so she's also screwing over her boss. Even as
2: she's hiding the diamonds from Diane Weist, essentially, like she doesn't. It's not on the record, so so she, So obviously Diane Weiss knows that they're in there, or someone knows that they're in there, and she wants to make sure that nobody no. There's they're not on the uh. manifest, so they don't exist officially. Um, and this person's locked up and sedated, and she's not going to be able to tell anybody, kind of thing.
0: I got a sense that she was like middle management, and therefore the drive to excel in her field uh, and to achieve greater levels of power as well as wealth, and therefore the proffer from Roman at the end being so compelling because now she is co-owner of a similar venture.
2: I thought it was, yeah. I mean, you know, you're, I mean, you're probably right. But, but, so the whole, was the, was she part of an evil empire where like everybody's scamming people in this corporation? Or was she the only one scamming? I
0: think, I think she's part of a broader system that scams older folks, a certain corporation, but also maybe a plethora of said, organizations which are referred to because the man who works at the nursing home says you know if you won't take it this room there's others who are interested so there's this invocation of both I think a larger corporation and competitors and I think that explains how we get the ending where she goes on a program akin to those on MSNBC and can speak very proudly to like her wealth and her standing it otherwise wouldn't make sense that that she's bragging and that a news anchor is bragging on, on her behalf if they all know where this excessive wealth comes from, right?
2: So with all the success, are you still ambitious? Are there dreams you still want to achieve?
0: Peter, I am only just getting started.
1: My appreciation of the look of the film and to some extent the sound of the film is that it strikes me as kind of like formulaic at the level of form. So like we get these kind of, you know, lens flare shots that are just extremely choreographed and engineered and you get um, shots of uh, Marla at the gym that are like very beautifully out of focus and all green tinted and in this really precise way. So in some ways, like it strikes me as kind of what's going on in contemporary CGI where they've learned to engineer the flaws into the CGI in a way that plays up the flaws in a perfected way. So it's almost like perfect flaws. And I think that's kind of this film's aesthetic in a way, but, it, but that's an aesthetic that I've got to be honest really bothers me. Like, and one that strikes me as hollow, like in some ways it feels like we've reached this point where if we're engineering, like digitally engineering flaws into a film, uh, there's nowhere to go beyond that. And I'd rather see a film that's like actually flawed. And it, and it does, I think connect to this, this real hangup I've got with this film which is that it feels like a film that's about the subject of death and dying yet nobody in the film except for I'm going to put an asterisk next to Marla's death at the end nobody in the film seems like susceptible to death. Yeah. So for instance like Fran like people break into Fran's apartment with the sole intention of killing her beating her to death and they don't succeed at that. And in some ways, like, everybody in the film, it seems like, well, is kind of, like, immune to death. And the film feels very, Im- like, it's it's an aesthetic. I hate to even say this, but, like, like it's an aesthetic of immunity. Immunity. Um, and the film feels, you know, cold and distanced and hollow in that way. And that's, I think, where I'm at with the film. Like, I, I feel like the, the, the filmmakers don't have the courage of their own convictions here. Uh, no. Especially regarding death and failure and flaws and so forth.
0: I think it relates a bit to... The, f- the feminism of the film or what the film envi- how the film envisions itself as being feminist. And that goes beyond casting a female anti-hero and taking a really uh, strong and controlled stance on the depiction of violence against women. So separate of this death question, it is very reserved in picturing violence against women while still telling stories about this violence so that the murder of the doctor, which I guess is is the one early death we have, is takes place off screen. And I will say, okay, I will say that my, uh, the biggest surprise and my greatest enthusiastic moment for this film came when Marla discovers this death and she is at the gym. And it's the best best use of closed captioning I've ever seen. Because I know that experience of being at the gym and even if you're like listening to your podcast or your music, you can't help but catch the closed captioning on the television sets and be taken into whatever world. Uh, And that's how she learns of the death of her friend or colleague. And so that's sort of brilliant at the same time I completely agree with you that from then on out we get a, a series of non-deaths that is so frustrating and part of it is it's holding pulling back on the reins so that when we get Marla's death at the end it packs a punch and serves its narrative purpose but it's I you know not killing Roman not killing Fran I'm sorry, you know, if you're going to embrace the female and lesbian anti-hero, I think you have to be willing to kill off the lesbian partner. And you know, it didn't want to go there and as a result felt very silly.
2: Another influence that was cited um you, you know for this film was uh was Jackie Brown, the, uh, Quentin Tarantino's 1997 film which I like and I love that protagonist and it's a it's a different kind of film but um In fact, these people are kind of inept at being violent criminals. Um, they're, she's, we get the sense that she's really good at gaming the system in the courtroom and that Peter Dinklage has this violent past and yet we don't see him commit any acts of violence, although he punches her in the face. Um, and he certainly orders the deaths of other people, but they don't come off a lot of them. Yeah. And the, and the bag is over her head. One of his henchmen puts the bag over her head. And, and, but we do have this idea that like he is to be feared because of, quote unquote Russian mafia right Um, and yet he does the classic James Bond thing which is like tell I'm gonna we're gonna have this face off and I'm gonna say get rid of her and then leave it to my weird hippie like henchman to like get rid of her and it just doesn't and it doesn't work and and he doesn't kind of stay to make sure that this is done and then she's able to rescue her partner which again there was no stakes it was the one thing that you cared about in the care I shouldn't have said that It's like drink Um, but you should the, the idea that like she has a partner and she has this other person in her life if that person had died I would have cared that this person was struggling or having having a moment where you now now i want her to get back at this at at this other person because she's had something taken from her but of course they just embrace and everything's fine and then they go on this spree and they you know they they get their revenge um
1: And, and i gotta say like i think the thing that triggered my thinking about this film being deathless is the fact that we're seeing a care home where no one is really suffering. And, and I get like, yeah, of course they inject Diane Weest or, or give her, you know, some drugs and kind of like drug her up. And that's a pretty ugly scenario. But like as a, as care homes go, you know, this place is sort of pristine. And it feels to me like that carries over into the way the, the overall film treats death. But I do want to address the big asterisk here, which is, of course, that Marla dies in the end. And it just feels to me like a hollow ending. And really, if you wanted the twist ending, so that's supposed to feel like a twist. We're supposed to get to the end, and it's like, oh my god, that guy from Act One who was so angry, he comes out of nowhere and he kills her in the end, and she gets her just desserts. The real twist ending here is when <laughs> is the one in which she revives from that shooting, comes back, like becomes a hero on national television for having survived the assassination attempt, and goes on to be, you know, even more of a superstar in the realm of you know care homes or whatever Definitely. it is. And and that's not what, so the, again, the film doesn't have the courage of its convictions. Like it kills her off in the end as a way of saying, nope, this is all justified. Like we've pinned her down. Like she got her just desserts. And the film doesn't believe that. What the film needs is Wolf of Wall Street. The film needs to absolutely embrace the fact that the people that are doing all this injustice are evil and they get away with it. Yeah. And they get away. So with
0: why it. don't give us, give your audience the emotional moment of Fran dying. And then a follow up five years later, new girlfriend, many girlfriends. Perfect. She's got Perfect. tons of hot girls at the beach, you know, at her pool, whatever. Give her that Wolf of Wall Street moment. She's living large and then gets shot and/or survives that shooting. But the shooting at the end, really, I think, is part of also what James is reckoning with in this film, in that we get the feminist thesis out of Marla's mouth, you know, 10 minutes into the film, and that that's men are afraid of women and uh, make threats and rarely carry them out because it's just a you know threats are a way of male aggression, of speaking to their fear of women. But in fact they're they're the real. they're the real pussies. <laughs> but then we get this ending where a man shoots a woman. And not that we're necessarily rooting for it, but it's, it's really uncomfortable, you know? Uh, and it actually, I guess, feels anti-feminist to me, not because we've depicted a woman as a horrible person because women are horrible often, uh, but because we give a justification to said violence when in fact, The sort of violence that Marla is talking about or that's being invoked uh, is a very different sort of violence, Uh, one, one that's just really horrifying and horrible and not that of a genre of cinema. Not that uh, of the anti-hero's demise.
2: I really wanted her to um, disarm him and rip off his penis and testicles. That would have been the real callback <laughs> to the first act.
0: You may be a man, but if you ever threaten, mm-hmm. touch, or spit on me again, I will grab your dick and balls and I will rip them clean off.
2: She put it a different way, much more artfully than I put Sorry I interrupted. I didn't mean
0: to You know what would have been emotionally satisfying if Fran jumped in front of that bullet and got it and Marla had to live with the repercussions of her actions.
2: Ah uh, like 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 defending the president from being assassinated or something. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Oh that's good. That's so good. <laughs>
0: and she's and she okay skip the pool joke so
2: good That's she's by, by
0: herself <laughs> that's,
2: that's the ending I we also I think she deserve. gets she she goes She goes into a, a coma of, of sorts and is assigned a, her own guardian uh, Fran is killed in the attempt she wakes up and and it's like a you know Johnny got his gun situation where you, Beautiful. she can hear and and she's aware of all this but someone has to take care of her and it's another one of her taking advantage of her own wealth but anyway
0: there we just gave the film four better endings <laughs>
1: So before we move on to our um, our usual sequence or our segment that's called Impossible Close Reads, I have an Easter egg for you. Do you want the Easter egg? I can do it really quickly. Really? So Alicia Witt, who plays uh, Doctor Amos, is from Worcester. And Alicia Witt's an actor actor who I really like um, from a lot of different roles. She had a kind of key role in The Sopranos one season. Uh, she was on the show Sybil years, years and years ago, and I can remember that. But um, Alicia Witt has a really interesting story. And so Alicia Witt was discovered by David Lynch when she appeared on the television show That's Incredible, reciting Shakespeare. And I can remember this. I, I was obsessed with That's Incredible when I was a kid. That I think that happened in 1980. Lynch saw this, recruited her, uh, you know, essentially uh, brought her on board as a young. Uh, w- one of the youngest people, I think maybe the youngest person on Twin Peaks, who, and also as a child piano prodigy, uh, she was able to play the piano in a in a closeout sequence, an outro for one of the Twin Peaks episodes. And um, so she's got this status as, as kind of this prodigy figure. But in addition to that, and in addition to having grown up, uh, born and raised in Worcester, her mother is in the Guinness Book of Worlds Records for having the world's longest hair. So it's a double win for Worcester, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned.
0: But was she a redhead?
1: I don't have dementia. You can't ask me those, those sorts of <laughs> follow-ups. So I do have a couple uh, impossible close reads for you, if you're, if you're game. And so here they are. Um, James raised this, and I want to echo it, and I thought of it independently, and when he said it, I thought, yep, we need to talk this through. Why does her tooth come out after she escapes the sinking car? Now, look, I understand the actual cause is that she gets punched in the face by Peter Dinklage, but why is that something that needs to happen in the film, and why is it given so much attention to the extent that she, you know, the tooth is loose, she extracts it from her own mouth, sticks it in a bottle of milk, which is supposedly this... Uh, I don't know if it's an old wives tale or what, but yeah. like supposedly if you submerge a tooth in milk or even like a cut off finger, um, it can then be reattached. I don't know if there's any truth to that whatsoever, but she goes through that whole process and then goes to the dentist and has the tooth reinserted. And so, Two questions here. Number one, that doesn't make any sense. If the tooth is loose, shouldn't you just leave it in your mouth and let the dentist deal with it in place? So why take it out and then have it replaced? But secondly, why do we need like what do teeth have to do with it? So if you're doing the kind of serious, symbolic, close reading of this film, like they decided to make teeth an issue in this film, and that's my question. Why teeth?
2: Or tooth I, I was I maybe. was ready for it to be one of the diamonds that she had spirited away in, in, in her Yeah. Yeah, I but is spirited away the right term? Is it secreted? I don't know <laughs> what the... Secreted. yeah. So <laughs> Excreted. But I excreted, Well, I was ready for that to be one of the diamonds, and she was going to be like, yeah, you know, I got my... Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know why either. It was like there was a big insert there, and it was like, yeah, there's this tooth, and why are we talking about her teeth? Because it never pays well, off. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, she needs to be sort of superhero-like and badass, and and I feel that sort of physicality of pulling it out shows just how tough she is. I will say also as someone who's uh incredibly fearful of drowning that that car scene was unanticipated and that one would survive that is just remarkable and it's a strong advertisement for going to the gym and using the rowing machine or 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 soul (laughs) cycle yeah
1: i I hope to i hope to save a life with this comment but if you're in a car that's submerging and you're and it's completely surrounded by water where this is going way to get out Is to take the headrest out of the seat, jack the headrest up out of the seat, and it's got those two metal spikes on it, and you bang those against the lower corner of the window, and it'll shatter the window. So thank you. uh, You're welcome (laughs) for the
2: PSA, and people can take. I think you just let it fill with water and then swim out. I don't know what why everybody struggles so much. Get the windows down. <laughs> you wait till it fills with water. If it's not a deep body of water, you just swim out. Did you not take swimming lessons? It's not. What is she crashing into 300 feet of water? But
0: there's. But yeah. the point is the pressure I, on I the windows. I think there's you like a physics get, thing. You can't open the They always the door. try to open the windows in the car. Yeah, she's, she's a, a really thing.
2: nice car, though. <laughs> they
0: should really go down.
2: Then she could have stayed down there. That would have been a beautiful place for her to exist for a little while. She could have been alone.
0: <laughs> okay, so this is the other thing. In this film, our supposed antagonist loves his mother and all the violence we witness him commit is because he loves his mother and he wants to free her. And that he is set up against Marla, who has a sociopath for a mother and is causing regular harm to elderly people. You know, this film is per usual, always about moms, while also not giving us the backstories and the answers we need
2: only that Diane Weist is a beautiful angel sent here by God himself <laughs> for us to enjoy. Um, I, I just, I just feel like Peter Dinklage should have been the protagonist of this film regardless of gender. Um, Diane Wiest was the only sympathetic character and, and again, had the most memorable scene when she sedated and saying like, you're in big trouble here. You know, you, you, you crossed the wrong person. He's coming. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was a, a wonderful scene. Um, and, and I was like, I was, I was wanting her to get some revenge at that point, which doesn't really happen. So if we're going to
1: close this out and ask the question or try to answer the question, would we yeah. RFU? Hugh, I thought you'd
0: never ask.
1: Would we recommend this film to somebody else or in, under what circumstances would we recommend it? Um, what What's the, like, I don't think I would recommend it. I, I, I don't. <laughs> and I, I don't think it's, it's, it's like largely because I feel like it, it somehow doesn't own it it doesn't own its own convictions. And and that's to me troublesome. Like, I guess I don't like films that are hypocritical and this one feels that way to me.
2: I, I, yeah, I I don't, life's too short. I, I, I just, there's so, there's so much, um, you know, to, to, to see out there and to watch something, um, to watch something that, that is so dark not not even dark i mean you know batman is dark i mean this is sort of like it kind of springs from a place where there is no joy and there is no hope and there is no there's no one we're talking about representation there, who's who's being represented on this screen that, that we're, we we would want to recommend this to you know for somebody that's lgbt or that somebody that's i just don't yeah i don't know i would have a hard time recommending it you know ABC News called it shockingly funny. I'm not surprised. Leading to the question, what movie did they watch? The New York Times said that she had a razor sharp bob. <laughs>
0: yes. You know, you want you want a dark com- comedy about violence against women made in the last year that takes violence against women seriously and thematizes it to the full extent and uses humor and genre to do so. See, promising young woman. It will be ever the more upsetting, but ever the more powerful and coherent in its argument, too.
2: Of the 2010 film, uh, Human Centipede, Roger Ebert wrote I am required to award stars to movies I review. This time, (laughs) I refuse to do it. The star rating (laughs) system is unsuited to this film. Is the movie good? Is it bad? Does it matter? It is what it is and occupies a world where the stars don't shine. That's how I feel about it. That's how I feel about but this.
0: otherwise, we do not care a lot.
2: I watched it two and a half times.
1: <laughs> thanks, James.
0: No, thanks, James. I, I, yeah.
1: Thanks, James. It was good to talk about.
0: recommended for you is a clark university podcast all opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants if you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of rfu you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-793-7644 508-793-7644
1: the recommended for you podcast is produced by andrew hart music by jimmy jackson rfu logo by aj simmons I hear more, or shall I speak at this?
0: Tis but thy name that is my enemy, thou art thyself thou not a Montague. What's Montague? Is no hand, no foot, no arm, no face, no eye have a belonging lying to mom. Oh, be some other name.